Luke 13 is what we'll be. We'll be looking through verse 22 all the way down to 35. I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about integrity. We started, I moved here with my family. At that point, my family was only three people. We had a, a, our son, Finn, and he was a few months old. We moved here in 07. I worked here uh, in the community in a, a company that stocks Home Depot stores. I was a, a I was called Crown Bolt, and I would stock nuts and bolts. for. So I can tell you, and I don't even look like the kind of guy that would be able to tell you all, all the things about a nut and a bolt, but I can. I can tell you like what galvanized looks like and what it ha- I mean, I can tell you self-tapping screws and if people are, ha- and I, I'm not even a handyman at all, but I can tell like if somebody's trying to drill something in, I'm like, yeah, they need a, they need a self-tapping screw and I know which aisle that's on and what size and all that stuff. And I did that for a year and a half as we gathered a core team from 07 to 2009. And so I stopped doing that job in 09. We, we, we did our first real kind of public service in 09 at Walcoats Elementary School. And I think we did that with about 60 or 70 or so people. And then we began to see 40% growth every single year that we've been in existence. So we've been really encouraged by that growth. Uh, but one of the things I've, I, I want to say to you that one of the things we've just never made a big deal about is numeric growth. We've seen growth in the sense of gospel community. We've seen growth in maturity. We've seen growth in conversions and baptisms and all these things, but we've just never pressed it. Even though we have grown numerically, it's just never been the big uh, staple for success, for integrity. It's just never been that way. And so I'm not saying it's not a temptation at times, but it's just never been the forefront of our ministry. And I think there's some reasons behind that because it, we, we do believe that numbers are important. If you do preach the gospel, if you are making disciples, if you're really making disciples, you should multiply in some sense. You see that happening with Jesus and his disciples. They multiplied into who we are today as believers. So there's certainly, there's numeric growth there that we should see numeric growth because it should encourage us, man, our people are doing a good job making disciples. But there's another side to it because I, I, I don't think we should base success on numbers. Because when, I, when, when Matt Ivan and I, we went to Africa a, a year and a half ago, and we would go into places in small little villages in Africa, and we'd see uh, churches of only 30 or so people, I can't tell you that they're not successful. They're, they're in one of the most unreached areas in the world and they're just plowing through faithfully in the gospel, and they're making disciples, and they're actually planting multiple churches throughout the, the area that we were. I mean, dozens and dozens of churches being planted all around, and I can't tell you, like, well, that's not a healthy church because there are only 30 people. But I have seen churches where there are 30 people, and they are not good. Like, I, when I was a, before I was a pastor of this church, I would go around and uh, preach at different churches. And one of the things I was noticing was I was going around to really dead churches. And I went to this one in particular and I said, okay, what, what's, what's the deal? How's the service go? And they said, okay, well, here's the bulletin. I was like, well, that's the, the bulletin. What, okay, what, who's going to be doing the music? You are. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> like, if I'm doing the music here, like the rapture has happened, okay? I'm just going to be honest. In some reason, I'm left behind, okay? And so I was there, and I was like, uh, so I did the music. I did the announcements. I didn't even know these people. I'm praying for Miss Peggy's knee, and I'm like, let's pray. And, and I got to tell you, that was not a good experience. Uh, the church was waiting for the pastor to be the one who would do everything for them, and they didn't have a servant attitude. And so I'm saying, you should, you should shut the doors, right? So it's not just 
30 people success or 30 people unsuccess. It's just some churches just need to shut the doors. And I would say the same way with churches that are thousands of people. There are churches that are thousands of people that have helped us greatly as a church plant. Um, the Summit Church in Durham, they've, they've, they've been a partnering church with us. And they're a healthy, thriving, uh, 8,500, whatever amount of people, multi-campuses. And I mean, they planted us and they resource us like crazy and they love us. And when we send people away to Raleigh when they're in sin and they want to move to Raleigh and not stay in Greenville, we encourage them to go to these churches that are, that are gospel-centered, but most of them are larger churches. But there are other churches that are really large and really big, and some of the fastest-growing churches in America, I would say, are horrible because they don't preach the gospel. They preach a false gospel. And so I, I don't think we can gauge it on the amount of people that show up on Sunday, all right? I, I just don't want to be the church that does that. So what I'm always looking for is health. I want to grow deeper in the gospel. I want to grow deeper in community. I want to grow deeper in discipleship and maturity. Are people in the body growing in their walk with Jesus? And so there's, there's a few reasons why we don't make a big deal about numbers. One, Jesus didn't make a big deal about numbers, all right? He just didn't. Jesus is talking to crowds. Crowds are flocking to Jesus. Who is he interested in? The 12 disciples. Because what you'd see is he'd feed thousands of people and they'd get all excited. And then they, he would say something that was gut-riching and challenging. And then they're gone. They're gone. So Jesus wasn't interested in crowds. He was interested in the 12 by which one of them betrayed him. Then you, the second reason is... Much of our ideas about numbers come from American consumerism and American dream and our ideas of what success looks like. Success equals size. Success equals numeric growth. That's American consumerism bleeding into our ideas, the church. And I got to tell you, God is the one who brings the increase. So if we try to engineer it in such a way to get more people here where I'm watering down the gospel in order to do that, I would say, man, that's... That's American consumerism controlling the way that we preach the Bible. The third way, I think, uh, I think numbers can fool us. I think numbers can be very dangerous if we put all of our stock in numbers. And here's what we're seeing here is what Jesus is attacking, the same idea that we see statistics about Christianity that you know, 70% of all America is Christian. I'm like, no, no. And so when we look at this, we, we realize some of the things that Jesus is talking about is, is very hard and very challenging. So look in Luke 13. Luke 13 is where we'll be. We'll be in uh, verse 22. Jesus is comparing and contrasting our worldview, meaning our like human beings worldview with the kingdom of God. He's saying the world acts like this. The world lives like this, but the kingdom of God is like this. And so what he would typically do is he does that and describes that in parables. Since parables are short analogies that explain really what the kingdom of God is like. And so Jesus is using kingdom language here. And it shows that our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And so he does so in 
parables. And so Jesus is talking in, in Luke 13, and, and these people are really, and, and let me just give you an idea of the consumerism that most of the crowd heard when they heard Jesus talk. They're, they knew that he was the Messiah, so their understanding of the Messiah was this. You had a culture of people, the Jews, who were enslaved by the Roman authorities, the Roman government. They were oppressed, and they were being aggravated constantly by the Roman authorities. And so they're thinking the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come in with a sword on a white horse, and he is going to overthrow Rome. Our oppression will be over. Our slavery will be over. We will no longer be taxed like crazy. We'll be out of that, and he's going to come in, and we're going to be made a big deal because we're the Jews. He's Jesus. He's the Messiah. And that doesn't happen. Jesus shows up on the scene, and they're thinking, we're thinking white horse, swords, war, but no, what does he do in the text? He, um, oh, he heals an old lady. And they're like, oh, an old lady. That's not what we were looking for. And then what he does is he takes that story and he explains them what the kingdom of God is like. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a small little tiny seed that you plant and it grows and it springs up to trees that have branches that birds can perch. And then he's like, the kingdom of God is like leaven which grows and expands, and it starts off small, but it expands and it grows into gospel transformation is what he's really setting up for them. And so what you're going to see here is how this really applies to people. So what he starts to do is unpack this idea. Look in verse 24. Verse 22. And he went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, those who are saved are few. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now, this is a great question here. This guy is asking, this person is asking the, the big question, are there going to be a lot of people who follow you or are there not? What is, how is this all going to play out? If you're talking about little small seeds here and growing and expanding, are there going to be a lot of people who know you? And so this is a very interesting question. So I want you to pause for a minute and think about this. Why would he be asking Jesus this question? How would Jesus know the answer to this question? Well, mainly because he's God. He can answer this question because he's God, but he might be the one who determines that answer, right? If he's the one asking him this question, maybe Jesus is the one who actually determines that answer. So look in verse 24. This is what he says. Drive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. You see this constant um, thing in the Gospels about a narrow door or a narrow gate. It says many will try to seek it, no, many will not enter it. You see in uh, Matthew seven thirteen through 14, it says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by, are, are, by, are, uh, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Are few. Are few. And so Jesus uses this word. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And you 
you look at this word, strive, actually means, the Greek word for it is agony. Agonize to enter into the narrow gate. So it seems like when you read this, well, all I have to do is strive and I'll get in heaven. But you realize no works can get us into heaven. We know that through other passages in Scripture that doesn't lay that out for us. You see it also, Scripture is clear that no one seeks after God. You see this throughout the Psalms. You see this throughout Paul's writing. No one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. The God of the universe looks down into heaven and he doesn't even see one righteous man that can do anything right. And so Jesus, someone asked Jesus a similar question in Luke 18. Here's where I'll I'll read this to you as well. Luke 18, 25 through 27. It's for as easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said then, who can be saved? He said, what is, listen to this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so he's saying, listen, it is impossible for a rich man to get in heaven. It's impossible for wealth to get you in heaven. It's impossible for works to get you into heaven. But what is impossible, God can make possible. It's impossible for us in and of ourselves to strive and get through the narrow door. But there's a back end part of the story, all right? And this is what I want you to see when he talks about striving or agonizing. Because agonizing does not come from our own selves. That's why I wanted to elevate that word agonizing. Scripture tells us that godly sorrow, Scripture says this, it says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. Death. So this godly grief that produces salvation, it's godly grief. And where does that come from? How is it that we are truly to agonize and strive to enter through the narrow door? The narrow door meaning salvation only found in Christ. How is it in and of ourselves that we are able to do that? How is it that we are brought to godly sorrow, which, which leads us to repentance? What is it? What is it? Is it just a, a bad thing that happens to you? Or is it God kind of beating you down a little bit and bringing you to a point where you repent? It's the Holy Spirit of God that does that. Let me show you John 6, 44. And I'm, I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you. I want you to build this idea of what it means to strive, what it means to long, what it means to agonize. Look at what it says in John 6, 44. No one, listen to this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Skip down even further in John, John uh, 6, 63. It said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So we can't do it in our own works. We can't strive to the narrow door on our own effort, on our own works. It's the spirit of God. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were and those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And this is what it says in verse 65. And he said this, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus says this in Luke 13. He says, repent and believe. Repentance and belief 
leads us to godly sorrow and we cannot repent and we cannot believe in Jesus unless the Spirit of God brings us to the point where we are agonizing for his love. It's the Spirit of God who works in us and it says no one, no one comes to me unless it's drawn to you by the Holy Spirit of God. So this is where the agonizing, this is where the striving comes from, the prodding of the Holy Spirit that leads to true repentance. And then this is what you see next in verse 24. It says, I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and, you, and, and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. So you have two analogies here. One analogy is uh, those who are trying to run after, they're trying to seek, they're trying to knock, and the Holy Spirit has to quicken their heart to repent and believe the gospel in order for them to do that. The second analogy involves a door, uh, but the emphasis is not on the individual seeking, not, it's not the individual knocking, it's more of the person who is inside of the house that's not letting this person in. It's a scary analogy because there's two sides to this. One is just trying to strive and trying to seek on their own good works and their own effort and their own self-righteousness. And the other part of the story is there's, there's someone in the house that's not letting you in the house. So, so who is the owner of this house? Well, they, they tell us who it is. They say, we ate and drank in, you, in your presence. You taught in our streets. They're talking about Christ here. They're talking about Christ here. So the picture is this, we're striving on our own works, we're striving on our own uh, righteousness, and you're not letting us in. You're the one who's locked us out. And they're going, I thought we hung out. Uh, didn't we have drinks together? Uh, didn't we recline at the table together? Um, di- didn't you teach in our streets? Weren't you, weren't you like our boy? Aren't you like our golden child, right? So what they're saying is this, They think that they know him, but they don't know him. That's that's pretty scary to think about, isn't it? We talk about numbers. We talk about what what numbers look like. He's saying there are many who try to come through the door that think that they know him, but he will not let them in. They are locked out. So the owner is Jesus. And so I want you to capture this idea Thinking that you know him, but you don't. Let me explain it this way. I've been a um, North Carolina Tar Heel basketball fan since I was like, before I was born. I think it was like in my mother's womb. Like I could, I could honestly almost biblically argue that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know you thought you were, well, I was done with those analogies because of March Madness is over, but I'm not. Um, but when I was 13, my dad used to travel a lot. He's an auctioneer. And I don't know if that's why I talk fast, but that's what he does for a living. It's like the $85 bill, you go five, no, six, nine, you know, he does all that. And he used to travel and he would go to, to uh, Kentucky. And that's why I grew up hating Kentucky basketball. And, um, and so he would go to Kentucky and come back and I would, you know, we'd pick him up at the airport. He'd always bring me back something from Tennessee or Kentucky or whatever. And he gets off the plane one time and he is like, 
Ben, you will not believe who was on the plane with me on the way back. And I was like, who? And he says, it's Coach K. And who's the coach for Duke, you know, basketball? And I was excited because at that point, that was in the 90s when Duke had beat Kentucky when Christian Leitner got the inbound pass from Grant Hill. And he turns around and makes this beautiful shot. And I wasn't a Duke fan, but I liked them at that few seconds that they did that. And then I was like, oh, okay, I, I, I respect that because they beat Kentucky and I can go and, you know. And so I went up to Coach K and I'm like, you know, Coach K, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm a fan. I lied, you know. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, Will you sign my, you know, sign this autograph? And he signs it, and I say, I'm a Carolina fan, by the way. And then his his nostrils do that thing like he does on TV, you know, like he looks like a rat, you know. And uh, and I said, you know, you know, you're a great coach. I mean, he really is a good coach. Obviously, he's a great coach. And so I just, I was excited. I met Coach Kane. I met a celebrity, you know. And then um, like a year later, I went to a basketball camp, and he was there at the basketball camp, and he got up and taught us, and you know about you know, achieving your dreams and chasing your dreams and all those things that coaches say when they go to basketball camps. And then I go up to the, the autograph booth and I'm certain, certainly he'll remember me. I made a, a lasting impression on him and I'm like, we met at the airport like a year and a half ago in RDU back when it was one terminal, terminal and, you know, don't you remember me? You know, he's like, yeah, he's just being nice. You know, I'm like, he remembered me. You know, I was telling my friends, this guy knows me. And so now when I'm able to go, if I ever go to Cameron Indoor, um, I'll, I'll get to go and say, coach, you know, hey, you know, I'll be able to do that. And he'll just know who I am in my mind, in my 13-year-old mind. I thought I made a lasting impression. If he's ever looking to recruit somebody, I'm going to be at the top of the list. You know, I had this idea that this was going to happen, and I was wrong. I was, I thought that I knew him, and I thought well, we had this thing, but it was in my mind, and I had, Certainly, he went to my basketball camp, and I met him at the airport, and we had a you know, two-minute dialogue. Certainly, he knows me. But you can take that story, and you can put it in evangelical Christianity, and you can take out basketball camp and replace it with youth camp, and you have about the same thing. Man, I, I remember Jesus? I met you. Hey, Jesus. You know, they're fans. We're fans of Jesus, and we just want the autograph relationship but we don't want the intimate parts. We don't want to give him the intimate parts of our own heart. We don't want to surrender who we are. We don't want to repent of our sins. We don't want to believe truly in the gospel. We'll just try to skate by and say, yeah, we know Jesus. This will get us to heaven. This will get us eternal life. It's not real. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a lot of people that will say, Jesus, didn't you teach in the streets? Didn't you come into our house? Didn't you sign the autograph? It's like, I don't know you. I don't know you. So Matthew seven twenty one says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, the Father, the, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Luke says, Luke 13 says, evil doers. So, here's what we see next here in the passage. Verse 28. It says, depart from me all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets of the kingdom of God 
that you yourselves cast out. These people are not only experiencing the torment of hell, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, but they're also seeing a picture of they're recognizing that God has redeemed some. A small remnant of Israel is there, and these people cannot understand it. And look at what happens next in verse 29. It says, And the people will come out from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and decline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So he's building into, and let me give you this context so you can grasp this concept, because a lot of people just leave it at, there's going to be a lot of people in hell, there's not going to be that many people in heaven. That's what people normally do. I mean, there's no, I, I totally agree with that. There's going to be no crowd control in heaven. There's going to be a lot of crowd control in hell because there's going to be a lot of people in hell. There's going to be a very small number, smaller than we think, in heaven. Unfortunately, that is what he's saying. So that's the broad understanding of this passage. But there's even more a specific understanding of this text that I want to bring to you because he's saying the first will be last and the last will be first. And he's telling this to Israel, the Israelites who think we're all in, we're all good, we're all righteous, we've got it. We've done all the law, we've done, we've done some of it anyway, you know, not enough to, to get there. I totally get that, but hey, there's grace there. And they think, hey, we're in, we've got this. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, you think you're first, but you'll actually be at the back of the line, and those who will be at the front of the line are the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those who are on the outskirts that you think, some of them, are wicked. Those are the ones my spirit will chase. Those are the ones my spirit will draw, and those are the ones who will be saved. And by the way, some of you are going to be on the very end of the line. Then it even goes further into this idea that he begins to unpack. It says this, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, go and tell that fox. And by the way, he doesn't mean fox like a pretty girl in the 80s. Um, He means a crafty, deceitful, wicked person, all right? Somebody got that. That grew up in the 80s. He says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. And so he's saying this, this idea of tell Herod that I'm in control, I'm in authority. And then he unpacks this idea even more in verse 33. It says this, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and today following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he's talking about prophets that, that, that there were prophets that did die outside of Jerusalem. But what Jesus is doing here is he's using irony. He's using irony because he's speaking into the center of the Jewish religion and worship is Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen... Um, I'm in a great danger by being here in the center of the most religious places. And he's like, I'm, I'm even, it's even more, more dangerous for me to be here in the center of religion, in the center of people who think that they're getting in, than I am even in the midst of Herod, who's a wicked and perverse scoundrel. I am in more danger here in the center of religiosity than I am with Herod because I'm a true prophet. You don't like true prophets. 
You don't like him. This is what he does in verse 34. Old Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings and you would not. And this is what he's saying. He's referring to 25, 30,000 people who are all about their status, their heritage, their tradition, their own religion, their own, you know, grandma's saved, so I'm getting in. You know, that kind of idea that carries into, honestly, the South. In our Southern culture, Jesus is speaking into that and saying, I'm trying to gather you like a, a mother hen would to its chicks, and you don't want it. You're not even willing to receive this. So this broad idea, this broad context that we see in this passage is, yes, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to hell, and there's going to be very few people that are going to enter into heaven, totally. But even a, broad, a more specific contract is the very fact that Jesus is going to some of the most religious people and saying, I'm safer with the most perverse guy in the region than I am in the center of Jerusalem. And you take this idea and you bring it into Christian culture, which is what I want to do this morning. What does that say about us? He's taking very specific things here in the center of religion, the center of cultural Christianity. He's like, some of you, a lot of you will knock and you will not be able to enter because all you know is church culture and you're trying to get into heaven by church culture. And it will not work. I mean, I don't claim to know about a lot about the book of Revelation. Um, I, here's, let me tell you all of what I know about Revelation real fast. In the end, Jesus wins, all right? That's what I know about it. Um, but I also know one other thing, and this is the other thing I know about it. There's, he writes to seven churches at the very beginning. And in the seventh church he writes to is a church called Laodicea. These are people who think that they know Jesus, and he calls them lukewarm, and he's like, because you're neither hot, you're neither cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You don't know me. And the language that he uses is really interesting, because he, these people think that they have it all together. They think that they got it all. He's like, you think you're rich. Yeah, you think that you are without anything, but let me tell you this, you're pitiful. Um, you're, you're poor. Um, you're blind. You're naked. So the things that you live for you think that's enough, but I'm telling you, I'm spitting you out of, your, out of my mouth because you are no good. You're not a, you don't know me. You don't know me. And so, so in light of this, this idea that if we take this big concept that applied even to Israel, how would it not apply to American Christianity? So we shift, man. We shift this. this we want to stop that, all right? I'll be honest with you. At Integrity, we want to put an into this nonsense, assuming that everyone who has the Jesus sticker on the back of their car is a Christian, all right? Honestly, I don't even have that thing in my car, all right? Because I don't want somebody to judge my driving based on my heart, right? I don't want anybody to do that. But man, we do this all the time. We just assume everyone here, we just brushstroke everything about, and I'm not assuming this in this room. I am not assuming it in this room. 
And so here's what we do at Integrity. I mean, we work really hard. So when, we, when you join the church, you have to write out your testimony. Then you have an interview with someone from the church, and we ask you, let me hear about your relationship with Christ. Tell me when Jesus took root in your heart and how there's a life change. That's what we look for, life change, and there's fruit in your life, and other people can see it because we don't just want to assume that be, just because you know the right words to say does not mean that you are in. It doesn't mean you're in. Heart change, gospel transformation matters. So when we do baptisms, you hear every single baptism we do. We, we make sure the people who are being baptized are believers. Is that wrong? I mean, I feel like we're crazy sometimes for doing that, right? Let me make sure you're a believer before you do believer's baptism, right? So we take time, we ask people, man, hey, hey we think you're a believer. Yes, but hey, even, even word it this way so it sounds like you know Christ even more and people can affirm it in such a way that a non-believer can come and they can hear a testimony and they know what it means to know Jesus based on a testimony because we want people to be sharp when it comes to explaining the gospel. Man, every single time we do communion, we fence it. We fence it in the sense of, if you're not a believer, don't take communion. And we're not assuming that everyone in this room is. And so some people just go up there and take it. Don't even think about it. It's because it's tradition. It's what we always did. No. We want you to do it because it's a joy to do it as a believer because you get the chance to the Spirit of God to work and examine your heart and move on your heart in such a way that, man, you're encouraged by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And we want to see evidence in your life that you love the gospel. And so we're not going to assume anything. Most of the testimonies that we have here at Integrity are, I grew up, in church, my whole life, thought I knew Jesus, realized that I didn't. Over and over and over and over again. I mean, my own wife, my own wife, baptized as an infant, had a false conversion, thought she was a believer at 16. Uh, she got baptized at 16. I think she went to a party that night and couldn't find herself back. I mean, she'll tell you this. Then, later on at 22 years old, she became a believer. And I, and I love that story because it just reminds me that there's so many people that think that they know and they think that they have this thing figured out, but they actually don't. The Spirit of God has to work in their heart and the Spirit of God has to move in such a way that they are agonizing to strive through the narrow door. Man, over and over again, in discipleship questions, and we sit down with people we want to make sure that they know the gospel before we move to anything else. Premarital counseling, porn addictions, alcohol addictions, any type of sit-down discipleship, even to the point of, man, I don't know if I can read my Bible every single day. We go back to, do you know Christ? And it's not even a weird evangelistic thing. It's just we want to make sure you have the gospel because we can't move you to anything else past that. And by the way, there's nothing past that. All marital issues are gospel issues. All addictions are gospel issues. All the, I can't read my Bible every day, there's a gospel issue. All of it is gospel issues. And so what we want to continue to do is press and prod on, do you know the gospel? I mean, we get bothered. When we feel like this message is hijacked to a everyone in the room, bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat after me, 
Mecca Lekahan, Mecca you know, all that stuff that we had to do, like Pee Wee Herman's people's playhouse, anybody? And we, we get bothered when that is done in such a mantra. And man, I've been in places recently with my relatives that I've been praying for for years. And the speaker gets up and he's like, everyone, close your eyes, bow your heads. Uh, did I say that right? Close your eyes, bow, bow your heads, close your eyes. No one looking around, you know, he did the whole thing. Pray this prayer, open your eyes. If you pray that prayer, you're going to heaven. And I'm going, no, they're not. Because what you see in Scripture, you never see that prayer anywhere in Scripture. You don't even see the language. Ask the Lord into your heart. It doesn't exist. Show me the verse. Show me the verse where it says, ask the Lord into your heart. It doesn't exist. It's not there. You don't see anywhere in Scripture someone has to come down front and after 18 stanzas of the same song, driving over where the pastor's sweating and he's like, one more person, right? You don't see that anywhere in all of scripture. It's all simple stuff that Jesus says, follow me. Jesus says, repent of yourselves. Die to yourselves. Take up your cross. Follow me. Believe the gospel. And from that, you'll see something different. You'll see a new heart. You'll see transformation. So man, we get, we get bothered when people are just assuming based on raising of hands and one, two, three, four, five, 700 conversions and we only have 600 people here. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense and we don't base anything on that. We want to see life change. We want to see heart change. We want to see you dive into gospel community because you love Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. So you want to be around other believers. You want to be encouraged. Man, we want to see you invested in the body of Christ. And we're not saying legalistic. We're just saying we want to see fruit. We just want to see fruit and who believes in the gospel. So we press, man. If we don't see fruit, we press because we love you. We care for you as an individual. And when I have sit-down talks and I have somebody getting angry and I'm pressing in the gospel, I just say, listen, I love you. I love you. I don't want you to be, try to get to heaven on the assumption. Hey, Coach K, don't you know me, right? I don't want that. I want you to know Christ, because there's abundant life found in that. So for the believer who's here this morning, here's what I'll say to you. There is thanksgiving here because the Spirit of God has quickened your heart to obey Jesus and to follow Jesus. Man, that is a wonderful, wonderful privilege that the God of the universe has come down and just like he says in Scripture, has rescued you and taken you under his wing like a mother hen would. The God of the universe saw a wicked, dead person and he's made you alive, the Holy Spirit. And so, man, there's thanksgiving here because you're like, listen, I'm a part of this narrow, narrow, narrow door and I can enter it, not because of anything I've done, but because Jesus has done in my place. When he gave his life on the cross, he died in my place. So thanksgiving there, there's also a response for a believer here of just not assuming that everyone around you is a believer, and sometimes the most loving thing you can do is ask the people that say that they are, and you don't see any fruit in your life, to press in on those places. Say, listen, I know you said this, but I love you too much to see you walk without fruit. I'm going to ask you, do you really know Jesus? When did Jesus change your life? When did Jesus make such an impact where you were a different person, the old person had died, and you became a new person? When did that happen? So that's for the believer. The person who's not sure, 2 Corinthians 13 says this, that you test yourself 
to see if you are of the faith. Jesus just doesn't need fans. Jesus wants followers. Scripture tells us when Jesus is talking to the woman in the well, he's saying, I'm gathering worshipers. This is what Jesus asked of us. So my question to you, if you think that you are, but you're not sure, my, my thing is this, have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever said, I'm a sinner, God. I've, I'm in great need of you. I'm, I'm a wreck on my own. I need Christ. Have you cried out to him? Have you surrendered your life to him as Lord over your life where you've died to yourself and your life is only about him? And from that, you've seen a change in your life. If you've never had that experience, let me just say, you're probably not a believer. Because repentance and faith calls a life change that's all about Jesus. Let's pray.